Thanks for tuning into this week's message. For more resources and information about Cedar Valley, please visit cvchurch.org. Hey, we're in Esther. Uh, we'll be right back in Esther today. Esther uh, chapters 5 and 6. We're going to be in Esther 6 is what we're going to look at today. So flip your Bible open. We'll see who can actually find Esther. Uh, if you have a cell phone, it's under E. So really simple. <laughs> Got that? Okay. Esther chapter 6. When you get that, if you just stand to your feet. And uh, we always say this, we don't stand up and down, we don't do the up down the whole morning, but we do it when we read our primary text. And the reason is, it's a simple acknowledgement from us. It's not right or wrong, it's just a thing that we do that says, hey, this is God speaking to us today in 2024. I'm starting in chapter 6, verse 1, and it just says this. That night the king had trouble sleeping, and so he ordered, he ordered an attendant to bring the book of the history of his reign so that he could read it to him. In those records, he discovered an account of how Mordecai had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh, two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters. They had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. What reward or recognition did we ever give Mordecai for this, the king asked. And his attendants replied, nothing has been done for him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your holy word. We thank you for your presence here with us now. And Holy Spirit, we desperately need you to teach us. We need you to speak to us. We need you to open our eyes and our minds and our hearts. What is it you want us to know this morning, Holy Spirit? That's what we want, God. Draw us to you. Reveal to us exactly who you are. Do it in a way that draws us uh, even closer to you, in a way that brings glory to your name. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, you guys can have a seat. And so... Uh, I, I, you've, you've probably heard me say this before. Um, well, well, first of all, I'd start out by saying this. I'm the last year of the baby boom. So, so from now on, here's what we do. When I say I'm the last year of the baby boom, you all just kind of look around and go, oh, you can't be that old. That's not possible. How, how could that possibly be? So what is okay. So for me, I'm the last year of the baby boom. No, for real. For real. I seriously am. I seriously am. No, I really am. And so, because I'm the last year of the baby boom, I don't always identify so much with boomers. You know, I'm not really a Gen Xer, but I don't really identify with the boomers. But here's what was really interesting in the church, and maybe just in the culture at large, is that in the church world, when Xers came along, Xers were very threatening to the church. The church was very threatened. And the reason is because Gen Xers always asked, well, why is that? And not in like the four-year-old annoying, why, why? But they, but they really asked, no, no, why is that? And the reason that boomers were so threatened was they didn't have the answer. They didn't know the answers. And so I champion questions. I think questions, we need to make a bigger deal out of questions, and especially when it comes to faith. Because one of the most dangerous things you can do is just go, I I don't know, I just believe that because my folks said to believe it. I think that's dangerous. It's not healthy for faith. And so there are always those questions that come up about faith. Like, and sometimes, did you ever do this when you were kids? We, we would fabricate questions. It's like, let's come up with a crazy question. Like we always, said, uh, we always said this one, if God can do anything, can he make a rock so heavy he couldn't lift it? Right? To which the answer is, well, he made you. And so uh, <laughs> right, we, we, we come up with questions like that. But one of those questions often has to do with the, op- the, the idea that we have free will. But wait a minute, but is God in control? And so one of the questions, and we'll look at this this morning, if we have free will, if we actually do have free will, is God really in control? And if we have free will, meaning we actually get to choose evil, 
We can choose to sin. If we get to choose that, is God even good? Right? Do we have free will? Is God in control? Like, how, how does that really work? If he allows us just to choose evil, he allowed Adam and Eve to eat of the fruit, right? Then is God really good? And so we'll look at that uh, this morning. Now, in order to get there, I want to, because it's been just a couple weeks since we've been asked, I just want to give you a quick review. I'll make this quick, but I just want to get everybody up on the same, uh, up to speed. And so if you, if you're new here, I, I want you to know what's going on in the book of Esther. So here's where we got to in chapter one. In chapter one, you, you just need to know this. This is our writing at the book of Esther is in about the year 480 BC. And that doesn't really mean anything to you. I know that. And you're like, oh, in 480, I remember what else happened in 480. But what you need to know is about 120 years prior to that, in the year 600 BC, the nation of Israel was divided into two kingdoms. Northern kingdom was called Israel. Southern kingdom was called Judah. This is where uh, Jerusalem is. And it was one nation, but it was two kingdoms. And Judah's king at this time in 480 was King Jehoiakim, and he was very evil and very wicked man. And so because of that, God allowed the Babylonians to come in and take Judah, and they took the residents of the, of the land of Judah, they took them captive back to, back to the Babylonian Empire. You would have read about that, like in the book of Daniel and Ezra, and Esther and Ezra and Nehemiah all deal with that. In fact, the book of Esther takes place between chapters 6 and 7 of the book of Ezra. It's very interesting. And so you need to know that's about 480 BC. And now, at this point in time, the Babylonians have been overtaken by the Persians. The Persian is the great empire of its day, and the king is King Xerxes. Just so you know this, if you have a, a Bible translation that king, it calls him King Ahasuerus, that's his Hebrew name. Some of you, your Bibles will say King Ahasuerus, and you're like, I thought it was King Xerxes. Same person, same person. And the queen is Queen Vashti. Now, here's what went on in chapter one. Just so you know, if you were here, you'll remember this, but it's kind of a weird story. King Xerxes is throwing a giant party for all the nobles in the entire, uh, in the fortress at Susa. You're thinking like Iran, basically, now. And he's throwing a seven-day festival, a big feast. And the rule at the feast is this, no limits on the drinking. No limits on the drinking. And the servants are all told this. And this is, only a, this is a men-only party. It's all the nobles. It's a patriarchal culture. And the rule is this. However much they want to drink, let them drink. How many think we're off to a good start? Okay, good. So now we have this big party with all the men going on. There's no limits on the drinking. At the same time, this is still in chapter 1, Queen Vashti is throwing a big party for all the women who are kind of associated with the nobles of the land, right? And so they're having a big party. And at some point in time during the party, on the seventh day, everybody's been drinking, no limits. King Xerxes sends a messenger over to the women's party to Queen Vashti, and he tells Queen Vashti, hey, I want you to come over here and parade in front of all these men wearing nothing but a crown. And because Vashti was a strong woman, she said, that is not happening. And because she refused the king, she was ousted by the king. And they just thought, We're, we, can't, we can't be threatened. We can't have women just thinking they're going to do whatever they think they should do. We can't have that. And we'll find another queen. We'll have this big talent search. We'll search the land for all these beautiful young virgins. And we'll find a queen for the king. And that kind of ends chapter 1. And then when you get to chapter 2, we're introduced to some of the stars. First, we're introduced to Mordecai. Now, remember, the people from Judah had been taken captive into the Babylonian Empire, which is now Persia, right? Well, Mordecai is not old enough, we don't believe, to have been one of those taken captive, but he was probably born into captivity, and Mordecai is a Jew. You need to understand that. He's a Jew living in the Persian Empire. And really important, the big star of the show is Esther. Esther is Mordecai's cousin. Now, they're cousins, but she's the much younger cousin, and her parents are both dead, and so as a small child, Mordecai then raised Esther. Well, they have this big talent search to find the beautiful young queen. And guess who they picked? 
Esther, this young Jewish girl, except no one knows that she's a Jew. So now here's this young Jewish girl sitting on the throne, and no one knows that she's a Jew. And then you get right to the end of chapter 2, and you find out Mordecai just happens to be standing around when two guys who guard the king's type of stuff, they have a plot, and they're going to kill the king. And Mordecai happens to hear about it. And so he reports it to his cousin Esther. Esther tells the king, and the whole plot is kind of foiled. And Mordecai actually gets credit for it. It says that his name is recorded in the annals of the king. Okay? Then you get to chapter 3. And in chapter 3, we're introduced to a guy named Haman. Haman is an Agagite, and he's promoted. He's promoted to second in command in all of the Persian Empire. Do we know why? No, we don't know why. But Haman is promoted. Now, here's what's really important. Haman is an Agagite, which means he's descendant of King Agag. Agag was an Amalekite. And all you need to know about that whole thing is that the Amalekites and the Jews are mortal enemies. They hate each other. And the reason is, one of the biggest reasons is, when the Jews were slaves in Egypt under Pharaoh, and Moses leads them out, and they wander, they go across the Red Sea, and they wander in the desert for 40 years, there's two million of them. It's not like, hey, there's six of us. Come on, let's all go. No, there's like two million of them. Right? And so as two million people are wandering through the desert, they get kind of strung out. And the Amalekites literally hang out at the back of the pack and they just pick off the old and the weak. That's what they do and take their stuff. And so Jews and Amalekites hate each other. Okay, this guy, Haman, is now promoted to second in all command in all of the Persian Empire. And what he, the king gives this edict that says, hey, because Haman is now second in command, if anybody walks by Haman, you have to bow down. You bow down to Haman to, in honor and respect. And Mordecai refuses. He will not do it. Why? The commentators don't really tell us. We don't know exactly why. There's a lot of speculation. There's a lot of reasoning of maybe why doesn't Mordecai bow down. Some will say, well, because the Jew wouldn't bow to anything except God. Well, we, we see other examples in the scriptures where Jews were bowing to other things just out of respect. I believe the real reason is nationalism, that Mordecai is saying, I'm a Jew, and I will never bow to an Amalekite, to an Agagite. He won't do it. Well, because he won't do it, Haman gets really ticked. And Haman says this, it's not enough that Mordecai gets killed. I've got a plan, and we're going to wipe out all the Jews in the entire Persian Empire. And so they, sign a, they, they make an edict, the king signs it, and the plan now is all Jews in the empire on a certain day, which is about a year from where they're at now, all Jews are going to be killed and that's how chapter 3 ends. And then finally, chapter 4, you see this. Mordecai finds out about it, and he goes into mourning. He dresses in mourning clothes. He tears his clothes. He screams. He wails. He cries. And the scripture says he goes as far as the palace gate. You can't go inside the palace gate because you can't go into the gate if you're wearing mourning clothes. But he's wailing, and he's wailing, and he's right up against the gate. Oh, snap. Who lives in the palace? Esther, his cousin, right? And so he gets word to her, and she says, well, you know, I can't just go in and talk to the king, because if I just walk in and talk to the king, and the king doesn't want to see me, the king can have me killed. That's the law. And he says, listen to me, girl, if you don't go in there, don't you think for a second that just because you're, you're inside the palace, don't you think for a second that they won't find out that you're a Jew, and they're going to kill you too. And further, he says this, if, 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 if you don't do it, God's going to raise up someone else, and they won't. And then he says this, and who knows if you weren't made the queen for such a time as this. And so she says, Esther says, okay, I'll go talk to the king, but here's the deal. 
You've got to have all the Jewish people, no eating for three days. What's the idea of no eating? Well, there's a fast. And the, the inference for Jews is if you're fasting, you are praying. You are praying. And so essentially what, he's saying, what, what she's saying is, have everyone pray for me. And so because of that now, they're in the middle of a three-day fast. And now we go to chapter 5 today, and the scripture says this. On the third day of the fast, the fast we were just talking about, everybody's praying for Esther, right? On the third day of the fast, Esther put on her royal robes. Oh, she's, she's getting dressed up for something. Where is she headed? Well, she enters the inner court of the palace. She's going to go see the king, even though she could be killed. It's just across from the king's hall. And the king happens to be sitting on his royal throne, and he is facing the entrance. Well, the king sees Esther, and he says, hey, come on in here. And furthermore, Esther, tell me what it is you want. He invites her. And so she says, Esther replies, well, if it pleases the king, let the king, now very important, and Haman, and Haman, the guys who's second in command in all of the Persian Empire, King Anhaman, the guy who's the Agagite, who hates Jews, who's had this decree written up and made, bring Haman, make sure you bring Haman, and come today to a banquet, banquet that I've prepared for the king. And so the king and Haman, they go in and they meet with Esther, and they're eating and they're drinking. And the scripture tells us that while they were drinking wine, the king says to Esther, okay, now, the king's kind of onto this, like, there's something more. That's what he's thinking. And he says, now tell me what you really want. Esther, what, what, what is it that you really want? What did you, why did you really want to meet with Haman and myself? What's your request? And he says, I'll give it to you, even if it's half the kingdom. Commentators say, even if it's half the kingdom, it's more just an expression. But he's saying, hey, I'm welcoming it. I'm welcoming you. I want you to come on in. And so they go in. And she says this. This is my request, and it's my deepest wish. If I have found favor with the king, and if it pleases the king to grant my request. She's going to make it here. This is a big deal. They're eating. They're drinking. Haman, like, okay, here's my request. Please come with Haman tomorrow to a banquet I'll prepare for you. Then I'll explain what this is all about. Now, if that feels confusing, it is confusing. Because it's like, well, you wanted us to come to a banquet. And we came to the banquet. And now that we're at the banquet, we're saying, okay, what is it you really want? And now you say, I want you to come to a banquet tomorrow. And it's very confusing. Why, 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 why would it be this way? And again, commentators don't know exactly why the second banquet. Some think, well, man, this is a big request. She's going to ask the king, hey, spare all the Jews. And I know that Haman ordered this. And I'm just the queen. And I know I could be killed. Maybe she's got to work up some nerve. Some commentators say, no, no, no. Culturally, this is just what you did. This is the way you did it. And so they have this banquet with the queen, and the queen has now invited them to another banquet tomorrow, and they're hanging out there, and Haman is besties with the king. He hangs out with the queen, and oh, by the way, when the queen calls a banquet, she doesn't just call the king, she calls me too. And Haman's thrilled about this. So it says that when they left, it says Haman was a happy man as he left the banquet. Of course he's happy. The king likes him. We're besties. We do lunch together. We eat and we drink together. And we do it just with the queen. And I'm the only one who gets invited. He's feeling great. Haman is super jacked and he feels great about himself. Except it says, but. But now he walks out and he sees Mordecai. And it says, when he saw Mordecai sitting at the palace gate, not standing up, not trembling nervously before him, 
Haman becomes furious. Haman was feeling great. I'm hanging out with a king. I'm well-liked. I'm second in control over all the Persian Empire. And he's feeling great. And he's walking out and he feels just great. And there's Mordecai. And Mordecai won't bow at his feet. And Mordecai doesn't tremble in front of him. And so he goes home. He continues his, his, his uh, walk home. And now when he gets home, his wife is there at the house. And he's got friends there at the house with him. And so now he's going to sit and talk with them. So Haman's wife, Zeresh, that's Haman's wife's name, and all his friends, they have a suggestion. Because they just said, hey, how was lunch with the king? Oh, it was awesome. The food was great. We had some wine. It was fantastic. I was doing really well. And then I left, and there's that Mordecai. He tells them the story, and so they have a suggestion. Interesting. What's the suggestion? Hey, here's just a casual idea. Set up a sharpened pole, maybe something 75 feet tall. And in the morning, ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole. Now, this is just me, because I don't know who made the request. And was it Zeresh, the king's, the, uh, Haman's wife, or was it friends? I will tell you. So I first, I first really studied this book when I was in college. Ever since reading this book, I don't like my wife having lunch with other women. I don't, I don't like it. I don't like women getting together and talking about stuff. Because I only think 75-foot pole. Like, whose idea was this? Uh, let me think. Let me think. 73, no, 74. 75-foot pole. Let's do that. And then let's ask the king to impale this guy on a pole. And here's the follow-up to that. I love this. And when this is done, you can just go on your merry way. Hey, hey, hey. Like, Whose idea is this? You can have this idea to impale this guy, and then you can go on your merry way to the banquet with the king. And this pleased Haman. And he ordered the, the, the pole set up. So, so here's Haman. He hates Jews. He's already had a decree made that we're going to kill all the Jews in the kingdom. And now Mordecai in particular ticks him off because Mordecai won't worship him, won't bow, won't bow to him. He won't do it. And so he's very upset at that. And so here's the deal. There's going to be a second banquet. Now, again, we don't know exactly why there's going to be a second banquet. There's only been the first banquet so far. He leaves the banquet. He sees Mordecai, and he's ticked. He goes home. He talks to his wife and his friends. You should impale him on a 75-foot pole. That pleased him. He's feeling good about it. Okay, now it's the next day. It's the next day. It's the next day when he's going to go to another banquet. But before that happens, we see this. The king says, hey, the king is, is up, and he, he's walking about. Remember, Mordecai, uh, Haman is on his way over there to ask to have him impaled, to ask Mordecai impaled. And the king hears somebody out in the outer court, and he says, hey, who is that in the outer court? The king inquires. As it happened, Haman had just arrived. He just got there. He got up. He knows he's going to go ask the king, hey, please impale Mordecai. He gets up. He just gets there. And it says, he just arrived in the outer court of the palace. Why? To ask the king to impale Mordecai on the pole that he had. Like, he, he, the king, hey, who is that? Who is that? So the king sees him out there, and the king invites Mordecai in. Hey, Morty, come on in. Like, hey, right on. I'm glad you're here. Come on in. And right away, the king says, so Haman came in, and the king says, hey, hey what should I do to honor a man who truly pleases me? Now, you, you kind of have to get the timing here. Because here's, here's uh, Haman, he gets up, and and he's going to go in and talk to the king. And so he's walking around in the court. And the king goes, uh, who, who's out there? Who, who's out there? And he finds out that it's Haman. 
Haman, come on in. Why don't you come on in? And before he can even pause, before, before Haman can ever, even ever say anything, the king says, hey, 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 what should I do to honor the man who really, really pleases me? Now, put yourself in Haman's spot. He is now second command. We don't know why. Maybe the king likes him. But he's been chosen. Haman has been chosen to be second in command. If you're Haman and the king asks you this question, what should I do to honor a man who really, really pleases me? You're thinking, you got to be talking about me. King's got to be talking about me. And it says in the scripture, Haman thought to himself, well, who would the king wish to honor more than me? And so with that in mind, that's what he's thinking. It says this, and so Haman replies, well, listen, if the king wishes to really honor somebody, he should bring out one of the king's royal robes. Yeah, 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 let's do that. You, sh you should go get one of the royal robes for this guy. And further as well, a horse that the king himself has ridden. Bring out a robe. And bring out a, a, a royal horse, a horse that the king has ridden, one with a royal emblem on its head. And then, and then he takes it, Haman takes it even one step further. Haman says, so here's what you do. You put this robe on the guy, and you put him on the royal horse, the one with the emblem on it. And then you hit king, you choose one of your nobles. You take one of your nobles, and you choose them, and they're going to lead the horse with a rope, and they're going to lead him around the courtyard. And the whole time, they're going to be going, this is what the king does for those he chooses to honor. This is what the king does. Like, this is, this is his plan. This is Haman's plan. He thinks, this is what you should do for that guy. I mean, for me, well, I mean, for that guy. This is what you should do. And so what does the king say? Excellent, the king says to Haman. Quick, take the robes. Remember, we talked about the robes. Take my horse. Take the royal horse, right? And do just as you have said for Mordecai. Mordecai, the Jew, who sits at the gate. Wait, wait. And the king says, don't leave out anything. Make sure you don't leave anything out. <laughs> and so he does it because the king commands it. He gets him a robe and he puts him on the royal horse. This is what the king does for those he wish. And he's got to do it. And he walks all around the courtyard, and that's what he does. And you can only imagine afterwards, because it says this, afterwards Mordecai returned to the palace gate. Well, of course he did. He's feeling good. And Haman hurried home, dejected, and completely humiliated. He's ticked. He's a whole lot of other words. He's ticked. He's angry. And, and Haman has got to be thinking in his head, I'm second in command. I'm the one that the king really wanted to honor. And most of all, he's got to be thinking of this. What just happened? What happened here? Okay. So now we're going to see what happens. So now look in your Bibles. Now look at Esther chapter 6. Look at verse 1. If you have your Bible, you're going to want to see this. Look at verse 1. It says, that night. Now just context, because this is everything. Which night are we talking about? Well, here's what happened. They had a banquet, and it was the king, and it was Haman, and it was the queen. They had a banquet. They're becoming besties. Esther, what do you really want? What I really want you to do is come to a banquet that I'm going to prepare tomorrow. Okay, we'll do that. They leave. They're having, now remember, when Haman left, he was happy as could be. Happy as could be. But what happens now? He sees Mordecai, and now he's ticked as can be. And so what does he do? He goes home and he talks to Zeresh and he talks to all their friends. What should we do? Oh, 75-foot pole. That sounds great. 
And he gets up and he's going to the king, right? It says that night the king had trouble sleeping. Just that night. It just so happened that he had trouble sleeping. Hmm, that's really interesting. Well, what does the king do when he has trouble sleeping? Well, the answer is I don't know what he normally does. But on that particular night it says so he orders an attendant, one of his attendants, to bring, now this is, we'll flesh this out just a little bit, to bring the book of the history of his reign so it could be read to him. The book of the history of his reign is, is a little, it maybe doesn't give us the right flavor, because what some translations actually say is to bring from the annals. In other words, there would be more than one book, and that's important here. He, there, there would be several books about all, they write down all the things that happened during the king's reign. And he wants a guy to just pick out one of those books and bring it to him and read it to the king. Read it. So he wants it so it can be read to him. And so in those records, in that particular book, of all the annals of that particular book, he pulls that one out. And he just opens up and he just starts reading. It says, in those records, he discovered an account. What kind of account? The account of how Mordecai, we talked about this at the end of chapter 2, had exposed the plot of Bigthana and Teresh. Two of the eunuchs who guarded the door to the king's private quarters, they had plotted to assassinate King Xerxes. He, the king can't sleep. On the night between the two banquets, on the night just before the morning where Haman comes in and he's going to ask him to put him on a 65-foot pole, that very night the king can't sleep. What does he do about it? Hey, go grab for me from the annals. He, the guy grabs that particular book. What does he do? He opens up that particular book and he reads that particular story about how Mordecai had really saved the life of the king. And then the king asks, well, what reward or recognition did we ever give to Mordecai for this? Because if, if you think about this, and maybe you've read this, this, uh, this book of Esther, right? Nothing was done. That is highly unusual. There's no chance that nothing is done. Mordecai just saved the life of the king of the Persian Empire. Like, this is a huge deal. And he says, what reward has ever been given to Mordecai? The king asked. And the response was, hmm, nothing has been done for him. Okay, now, you ready for this? So just think contextually. First banquet. They're besties. They're all having a good time. Haman's feeling great about himself. Haman Lee, oh, Mordecai. And now he's ticked. And now he gets home. And there's Zeresh. And there's some of his friends. And they're like, how is it being besties with the king? And he's like, it was awesome until I came out. And then Mordecai's there, and now I'm really ticked. Oh, 65-foot pole. Oh, that pleases me. Now he goes to bed. Now in the morning, he's getting up, and he's headed to the king's specifically to ask to have him impaled. And now the scripture says this. Hmm, who's that in the outer court? Remember, we read this. And they say it's Haman. Like, this is one of those where you're just like, man, man. That seems very coincidental, doesn't it? It seems very coincidental that that, that just happened on that night. We kind of thought that it was weird that you even had two banquets. What's the purpose of having two banquets? Hmm, this is interesting. And so the word coincidence comes into play. Is this just coincidence? So for instance, was it just simply a coincidence, a happenstance, that Mordecai heard the plot to start with at the end of chapter 2? He just happened to be close enough where he could hear these two guys planning to murder the king. He just happened to be close enough. Or could it just be coincidence the king just happened to forget to reward Mordecai? That would never happen. You would never forget to reward the guy who just saved the life of the king of the entire empire. Is it, 
just coincidence, it just happened that Esther, out of all the young virgins in the land, happened to be chosen. And she happens to be a Jew, even though nobody knows it. Like coincidence of all coincidence. Is it coincidence that there's a second banquet? We don't know. Is it a cultural thing? Is she still working up some nerve to make this great request to the king? Is it coincidence that the, 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 the king couldn't sleep on that specific night? It was that specific night that the king couldn't sleep. And that he asked for an annual to be read. And the guy pulled that part of the king's record and he reads that specific incident. Is all of that just coincidence? Which brings about this question. What does coincidence even mean? What does that actually mean? The word coincidence is found in our Bible only one time. Only one time. And the word was used by Jesus himself. Jesus is the one who used the word coincidence. In Luke chapter 10, remember this? A bunch of attorney types. They're all experts in the Jewish law. And they get together and they're trying to trick Jesus. And the one guy says, Rabbi, what do I have to do to enter the kingdom of heaven? Well, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And love your neighbor as yourself. And the guy feels pretty good about himself right? And uh, Jesus says, yep, that's what you do. Do it, and you'll inherit life. And the guy says the scriptures, he wants to validate himself. And so what does he say? Well, who's my neighbor? And Jesus goes into a story in Luke chapter 10, and he tells the parable of the Good Samaritan. And this is what he says. He talks about a guy who's going from Jerusalem, which is way elevated. Did you know that regardless of where, you, where you're headed, when you, when you go to Jerusalem, right? It doesn't matter where you come from, north or south, you're always going up to Jerusalem. And when you leave Jerusalem, it doesn't matter whether you're going north or south, you're going down from Jerusalem. So he's leaving Jerusalem, very high elevation. It's a story. Jesus is telling a, a story. He's making up to make a point. And the guy's leaving, and he's going down to Jericho. And everybody would have known that road. It's so steep because of the elevation that it winds back and forth, winds back and forth, winds back and forth. And on that road, it was known to be a very dangerous road. This guy gets jumped, and they leave him naked on the side of the road. They steal his clothes and everything. And now Jesus is going to talk about who's coming along. And he says this. And by coincidence, a priest came along. It was no coincidence. Jesus is making up the story. He's making a point. It's extremely intentional, and he's the Messiah. He is God. When he says things, nothing is by chance, right? Coincidence doesn't mean in the Bible, when it's only used once, it doesn't mean just like, gee, I don't, I don't have any clue. There's a plan to it. In the Greek, in the Greek, the word coincidence, it's again, only, only the one time, is sunkurion. It's made up of two words. Sun means together with, and kurios means supreme in authority. So a very, a very literal translation of the word that's used one time in the New Testament, the word coincidence, would read like this. It's what occurs together by God's providential arrangement of circumstances. And whenever you see the word providence or providential, you just think in your head, good. You just think in your head, good. The providence of God speaks to the goodness of God. That God is always bringing things about. Right? Whenever you hear the word providence, it's God bringing things about. So for me, because I'm a Huckleberry, a Huckleberry definition of the word coincidence would almost look like this. It's God bringing goodness out of messiness. That's, that's really coincidence. And what's funny is you go, well, that could just be a simple coincidence because it wasn't a really big deal. Listen to me. It wasn't a big deal to you. It wasn't a big deal in your life. It, who was it a big de deal to that the king couldn't sleep that night? Well, that's just a coincidence. Right. To you. To you. 
Whenever, I, I love this, um, just throughout the scripture, we were, we were talking about our sermon prep team, and Amos is on that team, and Jonas, and Hillary's on that team. And I remember one time, Hillary, you said this, and it just stuck with me. It just stuck with me, and I, and I, and I remember I wrote this down, that so oftentimes we miss out because we, we either fail to understand or we fail to remember the character of God. Let me just say that again, because I thought that was significant. So oftentimes in our lives, we miss out because we either fail to remember, right? We, we, we just flat out forget or we're ignorant of. We don't know about the character of God. And when we talk about coincidence and when we talk about providence, it always speaks of the goodness of God, the goodness of God. This is what the psalmist said. You are good and you only do good. The prophet Nahum, it says this in Nahum. It says, the Lord is good, a strong refuge when trouble comes. In the New Testament, James says this, whatever is good and perfect, just stop. Anything, if it's good or if it's perfect, it's a gift coming down to us from God. And by the way, P.S., just so you know this, he never changes. That's his character. It's his nature that he is good, that he only gives what is good. That is the nature. That is the very character of God. Now, we have a verse that we always like to quote in Romans 8, 28. And we like to say it about things. Oh, all things work together for the good. But what you forget to do is we forget to go back earlier in context. Romans 8, not verse 28. Go to Romans 8, verses 18, so you pick up context. Yet, what we suffer now, Paul is talking about suffering Paul is talking about how sometimes our lives are difficult and challenging. Okay, what we suffer now, that's the context of this passage. Okay, now look at verse 28, which says this, And we know that God causes everything to work together for the good. For those who love God, who are called according to his purpose, right? That, that's why. And so it's so important that we recognize the goodness of God, that we see all through the book of Esther, the invisible hand of God at work. Why? Because God is good, because he's always working his good, because Haman is evil, because he's a creature of free will. And creatures of free will, it's just like you and I, we get to choose sin. And sometimes when somebody around you chooses sin, it has dramatic consequences on your life. And sometimes you choose sin, and it has dramatic consequences on your life. But our God is always good. Our God is always good. Our God is always bringing about good. God was doing it in the book of Esther. And I'm hoping that what you see throughout Esther is the invisible hand of God working out his good. So we always have a big so what. And I want you to remember this, and we'll flesh this out just a little bit. But the big so what is this. When you have confidence in the goodness of God, confidence in a good God, you develop endurance for the messy times. When we remember that God is good, we see his providential working. We see coincidences of which there are none. Then it reminds us, our God is good. Our God is good. Our God is good. And you develop endurance for the really, really messy times. This is how James said it. And many of you will know this. Dear brothers and sisters, when troubles, P.S., it didn't say if. When troubles of any kind come your way, consider it an opportunity for great joy. Great joy? Why would I have great joy for that? James goes on. Because you know that when your faith is tested, your endurance has a chance to grow. Oh, 
got it. My endurance, my endurance. Because I remember that God is good. Because I've seen the providence of God. Because I've seen the workings of God. I've seen what a lot of folks call coincidence. And now it reminds me, that's right. Because confidence in a good God develops endurance in messy times. Can I tell you something this morning? God is always good. And some of you, if if we just said it this way, you have been through some really sucky times. And you would be the first ones to stand up and testify to the goodness of God. And I would tell you this, I've had a few, few, few pinches in life. And I would tell you this, God is good. Some of you are in it right now and you would stand and you would testify and you would say, you know what, man? This is tough and God is good good. It's the goodness of God. 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 Our God is always good. Tough times build endurance and they remind us of the goodness of God. 